Kicking things off with a quick reminder, from now until the end of the month, you can take $20 off the ADHD Online assessment simply by using the discount code REFOCUSED20 when you check out. Whether you're looking for a second opinion, are ready to get answers for the first time, or just want a little extra info about your brain, this is the perfect next step for you. Now remember, to get this offer, simply use the discount code REFOCUS20, and you can head to ADHDonline.com to get started today. On May 26th, Huffington Post published an article entitled, I Couldn't Manage My Messy Life, Then I Started Stealing My Nine-Year-Old's Ritalin. And today on Refocused, we'll meet the wife, mother, teacher, and author behind the headline. My name is Lindsay Gensel, and every week on Refocused, we dive into the incredibly complex world of ADHD, exploring the topics most important to our community by interviewing medical providers, mental health professionals, and ADHD experts. We also just talk to other neurodiverse folks who share what it's like living in a world not built for them. And of course, all of that brings up lots of tips, tricks, and workarounds that we can mix and match to fit in our own lives and needs. Whether you've been navigating ADHD your entire life or you're just starting your journey, there's something for everyone on Refocused. And I promise that while we take this very seriously, we also have a lot of fun because life is way better with a little laughter in it. So sit back, relax, or do whatever you need to do to get into your listening mode because the latest episode of Refocused gets started right now. The headline was catchy, no doubt. I couldn't manage my messy life. Then I started stealing my nine-year-old's Ritalin. As I read the piece Kim R. Livingston wrote for Huffington Post's personal essay section at the end of May, I saw myself in her story. Obviously not the whole stealing Ritalin from a child part, but in the way she saw herself prior to that. Kim wrote, Even though I wanted to clean, I was somehow unable to attack the chaos. It was like trying to pay bills before I married my engineer husband. I knew it needed to be done, and I had every intention of doing it, just not right now. Simple tasks seemed complex because I couldn't find a starting point, and I didn't see a clear set of steps ahead. Write a check, address an envelope, walk it to the mailbox. If I had known that a first step was what I needed, I might have been able to find it. In my mind, the more I thought about it, the more the chore grew into something dark and nebulous. So I tiptoe around my laundry on the bathroom floor, thinking, I should clear this mess, and then move on to something else. As you already know from the title of the article, there was a point where the 36-year-old English teacher with a minivan and a master's degree started taking her son's Ritalin. Is grasping at pearls still a thing? This is the point of the story where there would be a lot of pearl grasping. Which is to say, this is where the judgment starts. And the unfortunate reality, this judgment is something I would imagine most of us have dealt with. And judgment turns to shame, and shame can turn to avoidance, and avoidance can turn into entire generations of women being forgotten about. And it almost kept Kim from seeking answers. So what happened after she stole her son's medication? Well, some might say, Kim started to thrive. Her brain had what it needed. 
In the nearly 20 years since this all took place, Kim has had plenty of time to reflect back on that moment, on those days, on that decision to finally speak to someone. And now that her husband and her are empty nesters, she also has more time to write. Kim recently released her first book, Walks Like a Duck, How a Mom with ADHD Led Her Neurodiverse Family to Peace of Mind, an intimate, often funny brain memoir of family neurodiversity and getting along with each other. And I'm so excited to have Kim joining us today on Refocus. Kim, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. Thank you, Lindsay, for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. So I'm curious, besides the abundance of time parents tend to find themselves when they become empty nesters and their children have grown up and left the house, what was the motivation for you behind sharing the story and sharing it now? Well, honestly, I did not want to share the story. <laughs> I'm all about stories. You know, I'm, I'm an English professor and I've been writing forever. And I, I had gone back to school kind of just for fun for an MFA in creative nonfiction. So I was telling stories and I, I needed to find a theme for my thesis. And I didn't know what to write about. I thought maybe uh, I'd write about turning 50 because I was going through this kind of transformation, this kind of identity transformation where I was becoming this new person now that my kids were growing up, right? But I looked back at all these stories I had been telling through this degree, and all of them had something to do with the neurodivergence of my family, with attention mostly, you know, my attention, my son's diagnosis. And so I finally landed on this theme of a family brain memoir. And when I tell that to people, they're like, I don't know what that is. And I think that's because I made it up. <laughs> I think I made it up anyway. And then that kind of allowed me to tell all these stories about the, the brains in my family. And so now after like 31 years of grading essays, I get to be the writer, which is fun. Well, congratulations. It's quite an accomplishment. And I love that it is another reminder that growth and accomplishments aren't just for people in their 20s. It can happen at any age. And I love that you were able to see this connection between the stories. And so I'm curious what people can expect from your book. It's a fairly lighthearted story of dealing with the different brains in my life. You know, from wanting to understand my brother's schizophrenia, to my own problems of becoming a teacher and a wife to a guy with a brain very different from my own, then parenting kids with ADHD, and finally the struggle to accept and understand my own brain and to figure out how to make the most of it. The stories bounce back and forth in time often, and when I was writing that thesis, my advisor told me that that was okay because maybe that's the way my brain works. And so I kind of took that and, and ran with it. You know, it's like I can do whatever I want here because that's the way my brain works. Yeah, it was kind of freeing and fun. I love it. And I have found from my journey hosting this podcast is I think our community of people learn so well through personal stories and being able to connect to personal stories and being able to see somebody else's growth is always inspirational. Yeah, that's that's one of the reasons I like your podcast, honestly, is, you know, the, the stories. And I think the stories that we all tell each other, just like in a walk in the woods and on Facebook and at the dinner table, they're, they're so important. 
Well, let's start telling yours. I'm hoping we can kind of go back to before your son, EJ, was diagnosed. This is in 2003. I'm curious, prior to even starting on that journey with your husband and your son and his teacher in the school, what were your thoughts about ADHD? It was it was a different time, you know, and people today know a lot more about it in general than I did. I, I really knew nothing about ADHD. I'd, I'd hardly heard of it at all. What I did think was that it was a label for hyperactive young boys, right? Kind of intellectually stunted even. You know, I mean, I was just clueless. I had no idea, really. And as a teacher, I should have been more aware. And so, you know, when when... When EJ's second grade teacher first called me, I thought it was about the academically talented program. You know, I mean, my, my son was bright and funny, a good reader with decent grades, test scores. He wasn't especially hyper. He could sustain his attention for a long time, you know, drawing, building, playing outside. So because I didn't know anything about ADHD, I was shocked. And I, I, I kind of fought her, you know, and in my head, I called her some names that she didn't deserve. But she said that he was having some problems in class and uh, he was answering questions when it wasn't his turn. He was getting up out of his seat. He was forgetting assignments. And my reaction was that they're trying to stuff my unique creative son into their neat little boxes, you know, to make him some obedient, boring creature that he wasn't meant to be, really. Um, and, uh, there was a little bit of truth to that, I guess, but mostly my reaction was because of my lack of understanding of what ADHD was, but, you know, we brought him to the ADHD specialist and I continued to push back, kind of afraid of the label, afraid of the misunderstanding that could come with it. And the, this doctor, I remember he wrote in his notes, I remember seeing the notes later that my son was friendly, cooperative, and fidgety. Those were the three words. And fidgety was the only word in all caps. And I remember thinking, well, why that one in all caps? You know, why not friendly or cooperative? But it was fidgety. And that actually is where the, the title of the book comes in, Walks Like a Duck. Because I was pushing back from the label, I didn't want him to say in any like school reports that my son has ADHD. And so, you know, he said, well, we, we can call it whatever you want, but if he walks like a duck and talks like a duck, they're all going to know he's a duck. You know? um, still, you know, you know I, I learned bits at a time, of course, it's a process, but we, we refused to medicate him in the beginning. I, I just didn't see it as necessary. And then one Halloween night, I saw that uh, that word impulsive, which the doctors had been throwing around kind of in action as EJ kind of just ran out in front of a car, you know, and it, it just, it scared me. And so I thought, well, maybe. And uh, we, we started giving him the ADHD meds and honestly, they have, of course, changed his life. And I want to go back to that teacher that I was unfair to and just tell her, thank you. Thank you for you know, for taking the time and the energy to try to give him what he needs. I imagine there are a lot of parents who have been in your shoes, especially for something that has been so misunderstood and has had such negative stigma attached to it. I'm curious how that experience, when you look back, affected you 
when it came time to start asking questions and what you were seeing in yourself and how it you know, maybe held you back from asking things sooner because of what you had gone through with your son? Yeah, I. Uh, it seems obvious to me now that we both have ADHD and that he probably inherited it from me and that I probably inherited it from my mother. But back then I was just oblivious. For a long time, I wasn't convinced that it was a real disorder. Even though I had all of the symptoms, my house was an absolute mess. And when I say that, you know, friends say, well, my house is messy too. And it's not the same. You know, my mess is not, is not their mess. It's not a normal mess, you know. And I began to see this and understand it when people would like, drop by. I remember a friend was driving me home from a teacher's conference we both went to and asked if she could stop in my house to go to the bathroom. I wasn't expecting that. And so the, the house was not prepared for it. And it was a disaster. The kitchen counters were piled with stuff. And it was it was really bad. And she, she knew me only from work, where I'm pretty put together. And she didn't say anything. But I could tell that this was shocking to her. Um, I was just so ashamed. I thought there was definitely something wrong with me. Of course, it's not only my job to clean the house, right? It's, you know, my husband's too, and he, he certainly did his share, but I did not do my share. And I didn't know that ADHD for women was even a thing. So how am I going to go, you know, to, to like, I'm not going to tell my doctor just out of the blue that my house is a disaster. This is the kind of thing that I hide from people, not the kind of thing that I tell people, you know? And so it, it, it was when I was in a bookstore, just, I think it, I was probably supposed to be grading papers, and, but I wanted instead to, to go walk around the bookstore. And I found this book by Sari Solden, her book called Women, I think it's Women with ADHD. And then I was just flipping through it. And I, I f just found these stories about women who on the outside seemed to be perfectly functional, but behind closed doors, they were a mess. You know, they didn't get stuff done that they were supposed to do. And they were living these, uh, these hidden lives. They were masking their truth. Right. And I just, I mean, I literally dropped to my knees and started crying right there in Borders bookstores. And I just, it was such a watershed moment for me. Like, oh my gosh, there's, and it, it was so emotional. And everything has kind of revolved around that moment ever since. I'm curious because for you, this reverse diagnosis, so that's where the parent discovers their own ADHD through the diagnosis of their child. And it's actually something a lot of parents are experiencing right now, but we're better equipped to help them. And you had to go through your experience alone, and we know it led to experimenting with your son's Ritalin. And I'm curious what made you initially start to even think that the medication could help you? Yeah, well, it was probably that book. You know, it, it just planted the seed that, well, maybe you do have it. And I, I think I did, like, Google some online tests, and I found that some of them just didn't fit me at all. You know, they were, I think, geared more toward men 
are you hyperactive? No, I'm not, not at all. You know, do, do you have trouble uh, listening to somebody in conversation one-on-one? Nope, not at all. You know, that's that's not me. But then there were these other tests that were designed more toward the inattentive type and things like, uh, do you have trouble sending out thank you cards? Yeah. <laughs> you know, is your house a mess? Yes. Do you have trouble keeping track of schedules? Yes. You know, all of that. And so it planted the seed in my brain. And I mean, I, I, I knew I wasn't supposed to take somebody else's medication, you know, and I'm not proud of doing that. If I could go back, I would certainly do it differently. I do not condone that. It's dangerous, you know, to take somebody else's medication. And so I've been wondering, what was it that, that made me do that? And I mean, part of it was ADHD, you know, the impulsivity of it. I just, I did stuff like that as a kid all the time. You know, I was a teenager, a late teenager, went away on a road trip with my friends. My mom gave me some emergency money. <laughs> and I'm thinking, emergency? You know, there's not going to be an emergency. Instead, I'll spend this money on a little stuffed Garfield doll. <laughs> you know, that seems perfectly reasonable to me because I want it right now and there probably won't be an emergency. You know, this kind of impulsivity, this problem with actions and consequences, uh, they were never big in my life, you know, not something I thought of much. It was probably my inability to see the steps, the forward steps. You know, I, I didn't know how to get help. I just didn't know. I'd never been to a psychiatrist. I wasn't comfortable talking about my feelings and especially my weaknesses. I was kind of shy. And, you know, this self-medication thing, that's what I was doing. That's what I feared most in my kid. You know, I didn't see it this way at the time, but that's why we ended up giving him the ADHD medicine so that he wouldn't grow up to self-medicate. But here I was doing it myself. I, and I didn't, I didn't see it that way. I, I got really lucky with it, but it's not something that, that I'm proud of. And still, I'm curious what happened after you took the Ritalin? Well, it's, um, you know, it was like putting on those eyeglasses, you know, that I'd needed since third grade. Suddenly, I could see a path forward toward getting done what I wanted to do, when in the past that just seemed so difficult, and I couldn't figure out why it was so difficult, you know, why I couldn't just, like, fill out the, the form and put it in an envelope and take it to the mailbox, you know, what what's so hard about that? Why can't I just pick up the clothes off of the floor, get them to the washing machine, and, you know, do my laundry? The medicine made it easy. You just do it. <laughs> you know, you don't even think about it. You just do it. I thought, is this what, you know, my friends feel like? Is this how they get stuff done? And it, it was just a revelation. I mean, in the moment right there, that first day, I, I just was able to clean. I was able to clean the house. I spent a few hours, you know, rushing around. And when I say rushing around, I, I don't mean like I was manic or anything. I was calm. It wasn't like having too much coffee or I wasn't jittery. It was just I could see clearly what I needed to do. And it seemed like a good idea to do it. And so I did it. And, you know, my husband came home and he was like happy that the house was clean, you know, and the 
the, the kids didn't notice that it was dirty in the first place, so they didn't say anything. But I noticed a, a huge difference. How long did that continue when you were taking your son's medication? Because you mentioned in the article that there was a point where you went, I can't keep doing this. If I'm going to continue taking medication, I need to speak to someone. So what was that time frame like? It was um, probably a few months, and I, I did it a, maybe a handful of times, you know, certainly not every day. And th this was his, what we called his homework medicine. So it was the three-hour medicine that he, he didn't take often. He, he had his main, you know, daily medicine. And then if he needed it uh, at night to do his homework, he had this short-acting stuff. And so there was a lot of extra, and I was the one who kept track of it so i knew that i wasn't like stealing it from him literally you know i was just like using this something that he wouldn't miss but i mean that doesn't make it a good idea but i just mean i wasn't harming my son you know when i took it uh, when you look at the comments on this that huff post article they're brutal you know like um but it, and i want to go in there and explain like no i'm not a monster I'm, I'm not going to do that. And so, yeah, a few times, you know, I noticed that when I had things to do, like for work, like grading papers, an English teacher, you know, there's always a blending of home and work life. And so it was hard for me to find the time to sit down and grade essays because, you know, you need this creative energy and you need a, a fully working brain to do that. And so I noticed that if if I took that medicine, then it could be late afternoon when my brain is normally just kind of uh, dead, you know, like ready for a nap or something. But I was able to focus and, and do that. So a few more times. And then eventually, yeah, I um, I decided I need to get my own diagnosis. I'm curious when you opened up about this, about what was going on and what those conversations were like. And I imagine that they probably happened with people in your life at different times. I guess I told my husband first. I was really reluctant. If I didn't have to tell him, I probably wouldn't have. Um, I was embarrassed, you know, It's because in my head it was still a disorder for kind of naughty little boys or something. It, was, it just didn't make sense to me. And I... Um, it was just ignorance, you know, but, but he was, he was always kind about it, but it was still, we had to work things out. You know, he would, if he would see me on the couch, just, you know, like doing nothing, he'd say, did you take your medicine today? And that would annoy the heck out of me, you know, like, like I'm just relaxing, you know, this isn't ADHD. This is just after a lot, whatever, you know. So that question, like, did you take your medicine? It seems invasive. He didn't. He wasn't being invasive. He didn't know how to deal with it, you know. So we had all that to work out. And telling the kids that was easier because, I don't know, it, it was still awkward. It was all awkward in the beginning. But life is awkward. That's what I've found. Life is awkward. Awkward is life. You just need to like, go through it, and you're usually better for it. But yeah, the kids, that was the easy part. And, and it's, you know, it's still, um, it's still coming out because I, I really didn't tell people, other people until this book. I mean, I, I was in a faculty meeting 
just a few months ago and somebody mentioned the book, you know, and so it was like a celebratory moment where my colleagues are uh, ready to congratulate me and I have to recite the name of the book. And so, you know, I say how a mom with ADHD and I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm telling the whole world here that I have ADHD. All these people that I've worked my hardest to hide it from for years and I'm saying it out loud. And it was, um, you know, my, my heart started beating fast and uh, they just want to congratulate me on my book. What the interesting thing though, after that, was that people started coming up to me, you know, as you can probably predict, but, um, but I, I, I didn't see it. You know, I, I guess I thought that everybody else in the world have had a perfectly easy life except for me. Everybody else, you know, has, um, you know, they're perfectly functional. Of course they're not. And so people started coming up to me and telling me about their own diagnoses and, Another teacher asked if if I would join her um, in, in a a panel for faculty orientation, talking about teaching with neurodivergence, you know. And so I'm seeing that it goes back to the stories, right? If I tell my story, then I'm going to be able to hear other people's stories, and that's going to help me, and that's going to help them, and that's going to help everybody. You touched a little on this, you know. We live in this world of curated content. Everyone puts out their best foot every morning, best foot forward, nothing else. And here you are, a mother opening up about this secret. And you mentioned lots of comments. People have opinions about the fact that you stole your child's medication and it doesn't matter the story behind it and you're never going to change some of their minds, regardless of what you put out there or what your family might even put out there. And you're very open about the fact that you felt guilty about it. But what you gained by doing this thing that, as you said, was not right, kind of outweighs that in a way because you were able to get help for yourself. And so I'm curious how you've unpacked your feelings around that decision so many years ago. And I'm sure once again, you've had to deal with some of that coming back up now that the book is out, the article is out, and you're putting yourself out there in such a vulnerable way. When I read those comments on HuffPost, you know, it's a good thing that I have 31 years of student evaluations under my belt. You know, I have lots of practice being evaluated, sometimes fairly, sometimes unfairly. And uh, so I, I can kind of see myself pretty objectively, you know, to be a good teacher, you've, you've got to see yourself objectively. And I can forgive myself, you know, I can understand why I did it. I can see that it was a stupid move. But I can see why I did it, and I can see that it led to something that helped me. So, although I, you know, I don't think it was the the best way forward, it was a way forward. And I was I was desperate, you know. I was I needed help, and even today, it's not all that easy to you know to to get the help we need. And so, I look at myself with compassion and. I was doing the best I could do at the time, and I'm I'm glad that I took a step forward. I'm glad I, you know, I, I was courageous enough to do something, even if it wasn't the right thing. It led me to where I needed to be. 
you're courageous now to sharing this because there are so many people, women specifically, who are going to hear your story and who are going to read your story and are going to feel seen and heard and feel like somebody out there gets it. And I'm wondering, you've had a lot of time to look back at your diagnosis. You know, in a sense, you were ahead of the game for women. This, you know, 20 years ago, we weren't even talking about ADHD for women. And it is such a different world now. So how do you see, you know, what are the most eye-opening things that you've learned about yourself since you discovered you have ADHD? Mm. Yeah, well, I guess I've I've learned to accept that I'm just horrible at certain things, you know? I'm horrible at sending thank you cards, at making my bed, at watering the flowers daily, you know, hanging flower baskets. They don't stand a chance at my house. I'm horrible at mailing packages, at doing dishes, remembering laundry, recalling specific facts and numbers, like cleaning out the cat box, right? So, I mean, knowing these things about myself allows me to like create some sort of workaround. You know, um, I can just say thank you in a text <laughs> rather than sending a card. It's so much easier for me. And I can set a reminder for, for the laundry and for the cat box. You know, I can ask for help. I've learned that I can learn. <laughs> I can change. After a lifetime uh, of identifying as somebody who does not make her bed, I started making my bed because I learned that I like having a made bed. And when I make the beds, I open the shades and the sunshine comes in, and I like that. And so I'm building that into my, my routine in the morning so I, I can change. I don't have to stay horrible at those things that I'm horrible at. But if I do stay horrible at them, you know, the diagnosis allows me to maybe see that without or with less judgment. And I've learned that there are things that I can do to kind of help my brain reach its full potential. And, and the learning is fun for me. It's just something that I'm really interested in. And I'm learning all about kind of taking my own health care into my own hands. That's kind of the biggest thing lately. Well, it's just a reminder of how important it is. Because it's your health, you should be in the driver's seat. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't used to think that way. <laughs> no, no. We were, we were never told that. It was just trust what is being told to you from a healthcare provider. I'm dealing with the exact same thing in my life right now. And it's just, it's so important that you are the one leading every single conversation. Yeah, it's, it's scary though, you know, because I don't have a degree in medicine and I don't really understand this stuff, you know, but it, it really does help to try to understand it. Speaking of taking care of yourself, in the Huffington Post article, you mentioned that Diet and exercise were two things that helped you manage your ADHD symptoms, but they never worked as well as they did when they were paired with the proper medication. I'm curious what else you have found over the years that has helped you feel calm and in control. Yeah, well, I think diet and exercise are huge, you know, especially for, for me, especially diet. And there, there was a while where I, I could not take... ADHD medicine because of a heart condition. 
And so I needed to really rely on those, those other methods. And I mean, well, diet and sleep, honestly, are the, the two most important things. Recently, I read a book called Brain Energy by Dr. Chris Palmer, and he talks about how mental disorders are metabolic disorders of the brain, right? And so he, he focuses on all these different ways to increase your metabolism. And food and sleep are two of the, the biggest pathways there to, to increase your metabolic strength. And with sleep, that's, for me, that's probably the biggest method of getting the most out of my brain, whether I'm taking ADHD meds or not. I mean, even when I am taking the meds, I do need to follow my sleep and food regimen. Otherwise, uh, the, the meds don't do enough. I've got to take a pretty low dose because of this heart thing. And I mean, it's, it's the heart thing is gone now, but I've got heart disease in my family. So I'm being very careful. But with sleep, I follow kind of the, the standard practices, you know, limiting caffeine and screens before bedtime. And I try to get daily exercise. So my body is tired. But I've also found a big difference with just the temperature of when I'm sleeping. You know, if it's colder, then I will sleep more deeply and for longer and better. I wear an eye mask at night. And then I, I wear mouth tape when I sleep. I started several, well, a few years ago, just putting this piece of tape. At first, I bought the product called Somnifix and put it over my mouth so that I'm forced to breathe through my nose, you know, and that creates a stronger drag of oxygen coming into my brain. And at first, it's, it's a little scary, you know, like I can't breathe, but you can breathe. And it creates this kind of meditative rhythm. I am a, a natural mouth breather, but, you know, there, there's all kinds of science saying that nose breathing is just better for us. And uh, I use earplugs. I know not everybody can do that. Some people really need to be able to hear what's going on in their house, but that's what my husband is for. <laughs> so I wear earplugs. And it's funny because he, he's got sleep apnea, so he uses a CPAP machine, you know, the mask uh, that covers his mouth with the hose coming out. So when we're getting ready for bed, that's when he wants to have our big conversations, you know, when he's like talking through the mask and I've got earplugs in and mouth tape. And so I can't hear him. And I'm like, um, there's a lot of what? <laughs> I can't hear you. What are you saying? So um, <laughs> it, it doesn't work well. Then in the morning, this isn't quite sleep, but it's what I connect to my sleep routine. When I'm taking a shower, the last 30 seconds to three minutes, I turn the dial as cold as it will go for my cold shower. And uh, that really helps with alertness. I, you know, at first it was shocking, of course, but then I get used to it. And now I think my, my dial doesn't go cold enough. It's like, is this as cold as it gets? You know, your, your body adapts. And I just, I feel so much more awake after that. So that now if I don't, well, if I don't take a shower, I'm foggy all day. You know, I, I just, I have to take a shower. But if I don't take a cold shower, I can tell the difference, you know, so that, that really works for me. And with nutrition, it's super important for me to stay away from sugar and gluten. So, you know, sugar and flour, essentially. 
And this really is what started my whole awakening, which is what started me writing the book. And because in 2016, I, for the millionth time, went on a diet. You know, I was 100 pounds overweight and unhappy. I was depressed. I was headed toward diabetes, which is a family disease for me, and heart disease and high blood pressure and all of that. And I just, I decided to give it one more try. And so I, tried this low carb diet and I, I took those first two weeks very seriously. I just locked myself in my bedroom. When I came home from work, I watched Netflix movies one after the other so that I wouldn't go downstairs and eat. I brought a supper of a, a very low carb supper up to the bedroom and ate it and uh, did that for a week or two. And after that, I lost the cravings for carbs. You know, I, I was addicted to carbs. And so it was, it seemed impossible to stop eating bread and pasta and brownies. And it just, I had tried so many times, but this time it worked. <laughs> it worked because, you know, I, I put so much energy into those first couple of weeks and the cravings went away. And I think that once you get rid of the cravings, anything is possible. People don't believe me when I say that, but I was, you know, I was there. I was a hundred pounds overweight. I mean, I'm still not perfect. I'm still about 30 pounds overweight, but I have maintained that loss of 70 pounds for seven years. And it all comes down to those cravings and not eating sugar. And when I eat sugar, it's not just the cravings that they cause, but it is brain fog. You know, I can't think clearly when I'm eating that stuff. And I, and I'm not happy. And that comes back to that the Brain Energy book by Dr. Palmer. It's that metabolism. When your metabolism is out of whack, you're gonna you're gonna be foggy and you're gonna be unhappy. And that's what it was for me. So I know that it's essential for me to not eat that stuff. I also have quit drinking alcohol. I mean I never drank much, but I don't sleep well if I drink at night, you know. So I, I stay away from it. And one more thing I, I found is the importance of meditation. Uh, and I don't mean anything fancy by that. I just mean a, a few breathing techniques that I've learned. Andrew Huberman has a great podcast episode on breathing. He, he talks about the value of it and the methods. So just a couple of techniques I've learned are box breathing. You know, I, I teach this to my students and and I hear more positive comments about this on course evaluations than anything else. But in, in between big, heavy assignments, I'll just have us all breathe together, you know, box breathing. It's very quick. And, you know, you just breathe in through your nose for four counts. Then you hold your breath for four counts. Then you release it for four counts. You hold it for four counts. And then you do it again. You know, so it takes kind of the shape of a box, breathe, hold, release, hold. And you do that for maybe three minutes. And afterward, I feel just so much more focused and calm. One other technique I learned is, I don't know what it's called, but you breathe in twice and then you release. So like from your abdomen, you know how you can breathe from two places. One is from your chest, one is from your diaphragm, right? Well, if you breathe in from your diaphragm as deeply as you can through your nose, and then you breathe in once more to get a little bit more air in and then let it all out. 
immediately I feel calmer. It just, it's a, it's a miracle, really. I feel calmer and then also more focused. I, I do it a few times a day, usually, and it, it lowers cortisol and, you know, all those good things to, to help your body be at its best. Before we wrap up our conversation, I want to give you the opportunity to share something that you wish people knew or understood better about ADHD. I guess what's, yeah, what I want people to know is that this diagnosis doesn't define me. You know, it's just a word that somebody decided it fits my brain type or my personality traits. I don't know. And there are, there are as many variations of ADHD as there are people, I think, you know, because we're all unique. I mean, sure, we've got similar brain patterns in some ways, but, you know, there's more to a person than that. And so you might know all about ADHD. You might know people with it. You might have it yourself, but you do not know me, <laughs> you know, that diagnosis is complex. You know, I have sort of a, a love-hate relationship with it. I, I think that it can limit how we see ourselves and how others see us. You know, people will try to put us in those neat little boxes. They might see us as squirrely and dumb. You know, they might make us feel incomplete or incompetent, you know, because of their ignorance, right? Like that doctor who put fidgety in all caps instead of cooperative and friendly. You know, I mean, my son was cooperative and friendly. Why not, you know, why not celebrate that? I don't know. Labels, labels are imprecise. They're kind of slippery. They're overlapping. They're changing. They're dependent on developing science. And so the label isn't everything. But, you know, that diagnosis can also allow us to get what we need to live, you know, better lives to to thrive so they're important in good ways too we're all like these beautiful mysteries i think and and those symptoms are not explained by mere diagnosis you know like all people adhders are just i think trying to get the most out of our brains and so i, I keep learning and so i wish other people would know that uh, that individuals are more important than their labels and so we should get to know them all with compassion my son was just saying the other day that after talking about this neurodiversity stuff so much because of my book he started seeing people kind of as, as brains you know <laughs> rather than people and so instead of if somebody says something rude to you instead of thinking you know what a jerk he thinks, oh, so that's that's the kind of brain you have, <laughs> you know. It's like you have that kind of brain, and I have this kind of brain, and we're all kind of trying to work through things together. And so, if we can just see people as more than a diagnosis, I don't know, a, a person with multiple facets, I think that's a good thing. Kim, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today, and for the book and the article and just being so vulnerable with something that is so personal. And I hope you know it's helping so many people. Well, thank you, Lindsay. I really have enjoyed being here and I enjoy all of the stories you give us. Thank you. Kim R. Livingston is the author of Walks Like a Duck, 
how a mom with ADHD led her neurodiverse family to peace of mind, as well as the Huffington Post personal essay, I couldn't manage my messy life, then I started stealing my nine-year-old's Ritalin. We've shared links to both of those in our show notes. I'm so grateful to Kim for her bravery in sharing her story. A couple of things I wanted to point out from our conversation. The first is there is a connection between people who have ADHD and gluten sensitivities. It's something we talked about with Melissa Orlov on episode 68, where she shared that around 15% of people with ADHD also have celiac disease. And according to the nonprofit Beyond Celiac, Brain fog is one of the most commonly reported symptoms for any kind of celiac sensitivity. Because remember, you can be sensitive to gluten and not have celiac disease. And from my own experience, I cut out gluten in November of 2019, and it changed so much for me. And one of those things was realizing some of my own brain fog was tied to how my body was processing gluten. Every once in a while, I'll slip up and I'll take a nibble of something with gluten and I nearly always regret it. And I get that I have a few years under my belt, but when I made the decision to cut out gluten, I thought it was going to be the absolute hardest thing I had ever done. And you know what? There were moments that were hard. There are still moments that are hard, like never getting dessert at weddings. The only weddings where you get gluten-free dessert is where the bride or the groom are also gluten-free. And sometimes I can't find a gluten-free bun at a restaurant when I'm really craving a burger, but all of those little annoyances are worth the way I feel right now. The other thing I wanted to share was how much wearing a sleep mask has also helped me get better sleep. I've mentioned our noise machine, but I also wear an eye mask to bed every night. Having it over my eyes has reduced a lot of the middle of the night brief wake-ups, and there's even a December of 2022 study that shows wearing an eye mask increases focus during the day. Because ambient light, that stuff that sneaks in through our eyelids while we're sleeping, even if our eyes are closed, it can influence sleep structure and timing. And by wearing a mask that blocks out all of that extra stuff, the study actually found it impacted memory and alertness that could benefit everyday tasks like studying or driving. I actually keep two of them next to my bed, and right now it's a nice little reminder that I need to purchase a couple more because it's pretty common for me to move around and misplace one in the middle of the night. It's not a perfect system, and it's also super important to wash them regularly, especially if you wear any sort of face or eye products to bed. I also wanted to let you know that we've shared links to all of the resources Kim shared with us, including more information on Sari Solden the author of Women with Attention Deficit Disorder, Dr. Chris Palmer, the author of the book Brain Energy. And we've also shared a link to Dr. Andrew Huberman's podcast episode, How to Breathe Correctly for Optimal Health, Mood, Learning, and Performance. Those are all available in the show notes for you right now. I also just wanna thank you for joining us here on Refocused. It means so much to me and our entire team that you come back week after week. And we have a great lineup of episodes on the way for you that we're so excited for you guys to hear. So stay tuned. And if you haven't already, head on over to our Instagram page at RefocusPod to follow along for more content connected to these episodes. (music) 
Today's episode touched on prescription medication abuse. If you or someone you know is struggling with substance abuse issues, here is a free resource for you to reach out to. The Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration's National Helpline is a free, confidential, 24-7, 365-day-a-year treatment referral and information service that is available in both English and Spanish for individuals and families facing mental health as well as substance use disorders. Call 1-800-662-HELP. That's 1-800-662-4357. Or visit their website, www.samhsa.gov. And of course, we've shared all of this information in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening to and supporting this podcast. If you're new here, my name is Lindsay Gensel. I am the host and executive producer of Refocused, a podcast all about ADHD. That would not be possible without the incredible talents of the team I get to work with, including Phil Rodeman, our coordinating producer, who leads our live production, scheduling, and audio editing. Sarah Platinitis, our managing editor, responsible for leading our research as well as guest and show development. Elle Chaplin, our go-to for planning, creating, and organizing content strategy for social media. Support for this podcast comes from our partner, ADHD Online, and the incredible team of people I'm honored to work with every day, including Keith Boswell, Suzanne Spruitt, Melanie Mile, Claudia Gotti, and Trisha Merchandunny. Our show art was created by Sissy Yee of Berlin Gray, and our music was created by Louis Inglis, a singer-songwriter from Perth, Australia, who was diagnosed with ADHD in 2020 at the age of 39. Finally, a big thanks to Mason Nelly over at Dexia in Grand Rapids, Michigan, for all of his help in getting our videos ready to share with you guys. Links to all of the partners we work with are available in the show notes. To connect with the show or with me, you can find us online at RefocusPod, as well as at Lindsay Gensel. And you can email the show directly, hello at refocuspod.com. That's hello at refocuspod.com. And remember, right now, through the end of June, you can take $20 off your ADHD assessment through ADHD Online with the promo code REFOCUSED20. Whether you're looking for a second opinion, are ready to get answers for the very first time, or you're just looking for a little extra information on your brain, this could be the perfect next step for you or someone you care about. Remember, get $20 off your ADHD Online assessment simply by using the discount code REFOCUS20 at checkout. Head to ADHDonline.com to get started. Take care of yourselves and... Please, in an effort to reduce the unbelievable amount of stress we all carry around with us unnecessarily, be a little kinder to yourself this week. And we'll see you back here soon.